You're listening to The Details, a podcast from Mr. Porter about the little things that matter in men's style. In the course of this series, we'll be travelling around the globe to delve deep into buttons, zips, collars, labels, stitching, pleats and darts. We'll talk to world-famous designers about the secret subtleties that are hidden in the fastenings of their coats and the seams of their trousers. And we'll be getting up close and personal with collectors, craftspeople and enthusiasts, unveiling the meaning and emotion packed into even the tiniest elements of modern menswear. Mundane as it is, kind of has to stay. Wear those all the time. Um, so, obviously, this is the kind of high, high risk, uh, low flexibility section of the wardrobe. A lot of tie dye. I'm having a clear out, trying to rationalise things. In my head, I feel like I can reduce my entire wardrobe down to a simple Marie Kondo-esque selection of minimal, timeless stylishness. Now, how many leopard shirts? does a man need in his life but then there is this leopard print shirt and this sort of mesh thing from Sakai and this floral kimono Um, she looks some more labels oh this might be fun yes they bring me joy but do I ever wear them okay too many Hawaiian shirts obviously worse there is a bag hung behind my wardrobe that I'm slightly scared of in it are a number of garments with various dire warnings attached to them. My favourite, I think, is this one, which is on a lot of things. Do not wash. It makes me think, what? Not ever? Won't it smell? Do not iron parts of the print, but there's also... Of course, what all these garments are trying to communicate is that you should take them to the dry cleaners and let them figure it out. Uh, trip dry and shade... But actually, that's not all they're saying. There are also other messages on here. Where each thing was made and how. What exactly it's made of. Importantly, who designed it. And the thing that a lot of people care about the most, what brand is it? Field jacket um, from Waco Maria. All in all, a piece of clothing is an unusual product in that it shouts about its needs and it shouts about its provenance. Sometimes it lies, sometimes it obfuscates, and often it attempts to dazzle you with a big name or recognisable logo. But almost every piece of clothing attempts to tell you its story in the same way, with a bit of printed fabric sewn into its seams. I'm Adam Welsh, a writer and Mr Porter contributing editor. Today I'm doing some laundry and talking about labels. There's also something else here. There is always sunshine in my heart. Sweet. Especially in a garment with with the the Grim Reaper on the back. Labels. Chanel, Dior, Lagerfeld, Givenchy, Gautier, darling. Names, names, names. So ingrained is our idea of fashion being branded that it's hard to imagine a time when wearing unbranded and unlabeled clothes was the very epitome of chic. 
Until the middle of the 19th century, the only names you would find inside garments would be your own, either stitched directly onto the cloth or onto a label so that they could be returned to you once it had been laundered. The idea that your clothes would bear someone else's name, let alone that of your dressmaker or tailor, was frankly shocking. All of this changed with the rise of the world's first couturier, Charles Frederick Worth, in 1858. Worth is credited as being the first designer to have put his name inside his client's garments, thus creating the fashion label. Originally from Lincolnshire, in the east of England, at the age of 21, Worth moved to Paris, where he became a sales assistant at Gagalan, a firm that sold silk fabrics to the royal court, before being allowed to open a dress department, where he created garments for his own clients. Soon, the prestige of having a dress created by Worth meant that the sign of his label inside the garment became a status symbol amongst the wealthy fashionistas of the time. While Worth capitalised on putting his name within garments to create what we now know as hard couture, it was other designers in the 20th century such as Lombard, Chanel and Dior that maximised the use of their label on ready-to-wear, diffusion lines, household goods and perfumes. That was Andrew Groves, Professor of Fashion at London's University of Westminster, explaining how we've got the reality we live in now, a world that is full of, if not entirely overrun by, labels. When a large part of a brand's revenue might these days depend on a well-timed t-shirt or sneaker or accessory, the strength of the label is everything. And the language of labelling and branding has become both ultra-refined and a source of humour and irony. Which is why, for this episode, I wanted to start off by talking to the Parisian creative directors Matthias Augustiniak and Michael Amzalag, whose category-defying, startling design and branding work for the likes of the Icelandic musician Björk, as well as fashion brands Louis Vuitton, Alexander McQueen and Lueve, has made them among the most celebrated art directors in the world. I met them at their studio in Paris, a small, open-plan space on the banks of the Canal Saint-Martin, and tried not to be intimidated by the shelves of glittering awards, including two Grammys and a Medal of Honour from the French Ministry of Culture, that lined the walls. This is Matthias speaking first. The idea when we started to work as graphic designers in Paris, we wanted to be able to reshape the landscape of sign, images and disease symbols in the city of Paris. We operated as a bit like author or narrator of the history or the French history of pop art or art or culture in general. So it was very important for us to create like an independent uh, studio that has the freedom to express with fierce and strength some point of views. And it was then very important for us to be able to be at the cross-section of many different cultural activities such as fashion, art, music, literature, theatre, Everything that makes like a, a place or a country a specific uh, place of research. How did you two first meet? We met at the School of Les Arts Décoratifs in Paris on the first day of school, one of the day of October, and it was like a big reunion between all of the students from the second, third and fourth year together. I was kind of bragging because I was really proud of my new look that I had made for this very special day. At the time, we used to go a lot and spend time 
at flea markets to dress ourselves. So I had this monochromatic look that I had done with like jacket from the post office from the 50s, a ski sweater, uh, some worker pants and some mocassins, and they were all exactly the same shade of blue. So I was really proud of being entirely monochromatic, and I was discussing that with a friend of mine. And then a bit later in that day, somebody pushed me in the back and said, move over monochrome, and that was him. <laughs> and then really quickly we were discussing music, illustration, typography, everything that was interesting us. Yeah, very quickly it was clear that we would be doing things together. We chose to use that kind of uh, direct way of speaking to the audience. That was something new because, I mean, now this is a common language on Instagram. This is faking always this kind of a very personal language and we all know it's a narrative. But that was our, our strength then. If you really look carefully at the work more than the style, it's more this idea of like, this straightforward way of expressing ourselves. We have been designing many uh, typefaces for a long, long time. It's just, I don't know how many there are, but again, they are constructed on very simple geometric rules. But the way they are designed, they always reflect this kind of uh, idiosyncratic language that we have. It's as if we were speaking French all the time, but this is understandable from Tokyo to New York. Could you perhaps give a few examples of the range of projects that you take on? Music was very important because when we were young, music was a strong way of uh, sharing culture to one to another. If you were listening to a record, then you were part of a community. So music has been a big part in our work and then we were lucky enough to meet one of the biggest musicians of the contemporary world, this is Björk, because like what she does is music and beyond. Fashion was also very much part of our research because for us, fashion, furthermore than just being goods or accessories, like a, a language, you know, it's a way to communicate who you are, what you think. So before you, you're able to speak to someone, you dress, and that's the first part of the interaction. That's your expression to the world. And it's often overlooked, but it's a very powerful element of communication and it, it predates a language. So the way you dress kind of shaped the way you're going to be able to speak. So well, as we discover with the, the full blue monochrome. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Can either of you remember your first encounter with the idea of a fashion label? The first label I encountered, it was like a very cheap one called Cricks, and it was a very mainstream brand. And I thought when I was going into the shop that I would find the best clothes ever. So I would buy what I could afford. What I could afford was for me a great piece of fashion. I was feeling I was special. How about you, Michael? Was there any early labels that impressed you? I remember the first like thing I bought that was more expensive than something at the flea market, for which I had like a bigger emotional attachment, was a Agnes B t-shirt because it was printed with like the film poster of this movie of Bruce Weber about boxers called Broken Noses. I think I paid it at the time something like 300 francs. That was kind of unheard of in terms of the scale of what I could spend. But I was really, really like empowered by this T-shirt. Have you seen a difference in the way we perceive labels? Do you think people consume and appreciate them differently now? It became much more industrial. It started from being almost handmade. 
I think the difference between then and now to be a bit caricatural is that before the internet or before social media or before everything that we are kind of droning into now, we had to find our own way to create your own connection and you had to establish your own very personal relationship. Today it's the opposite. We are constantly like flooded with messages and images and product and logos and branding that are trying to beg for like one nanosecond of attention. The label will be part of many different things that you are designing for a brand. What's the importance of the label and the logo type and how do you design those things that have cut through and bring a bit of context and a world with it's, them. It's just to reverse that principle that Michael was de describing. You can't be just a consumer. If you want to truly engage a relationship to someone like a customer, and I think this is what we try to retrieve when working for a brand or label, is to nag the customer so he has to make an effort. He has to say, well, I'm still human, and to be able to learn I need to make an effort. One of MM's most striking recent projects is the rebranding of the Spanish leather specialist Lueve. Working with the house's creative director, Jonathan Anderson, they created a meticulously researched new identity for the brand that included a new design for its logotype and label, as well as the brand's signature symbol, the anagram, for interlocking L's arranged in a square which now often appears as an external label on Loewe's garments and accessories. The whole strategy of Loewe, when we first discussed with Jonathan about what we could do together at the very beginning... And this is Jonathan Anderson, Jonathan, the designer. Yeah, of yeah. course. What we discussed was to replace the idea of an heritage brand by the idea of a cultural brand, that we shouldn't look at uh, as heritage as something that would be like a burden, heavy the craftsmanship and all that, but we should look at every item as something that has a cultural content. It's quite interesting that as a project in general, though, when we're talking about labels, because the brand and the label is very front and centre yeah. on the products, and there's the denim jackets with the patch pocket and lots of the L logotype. Yeah, yeah. How could you kind of balance that tension between the world and the brand? The brand is necessary, it's like a flag. If you want to be part of the discussion, you need to clearly announce who you are, like the same way we are dressing up. This is important that you kind of create like an armor, something that makes you like have a face. And then for a brand, a way to have a face, it's via his logo and identity. The other thing I wanted to get your opinion on was another current within label design and fashion, which is that move towards reducing a logo to something simpler. The sans serif, the yeah, kind of rebrands yeah, of yeah, the, the Saint Laurent, the Burberry. Yeah. Why do you think people are doing that? And what's the impact and reason for the move towards timelessness as simplicity? Because I think they're discovering the power of brand and they, they're beginners. I think it's move. a nostalgia for a moment of modernism where there was this idea of efficiency in communication. People are desperately trying to achieve because of the chaos of social media and because of the chaos of the internet. So people are like corporate mind think that by being very simple, they will be able to cut through the noise. The belief when all these typography and signs were designed in the 50s or in the 60s, they would be able to communicate to the mass. The problem we see is that today you don't communicate to the mass, but you communicate in one-to-one -to, -one to every single person. A million times over. Yeah, and that's why by being so bland, you might have an issue to be remembered or to cut through the noise. 
the logo on its own is not enough. It needs some kind of substance, some kind of like landscape for people to project onto it. What a designer sometimes is, we don't invent a lot, but we kind of solve a problem where we react things in order for the communication to be fluid again. That's also part of our work where sometimes it's just about taking something that has been shifted not in the good way and then reacting it to be able to create an act of communication. We work on projects where the expression is very at minima. It's more you see that we can have done it, but maybe if you really get deep into the, the thinking that was behind the project. As far as MM Paris is concerned, the label is a symbol, an intellectual proposition that points to something wider than the brand itself, a world of inspiration, the dream behind the clothes. All this, the intimation, the sign, is something that seems very much of the present. But I'm also interested in the way that labels, in their own strange way, bear testimony to the past. Here's Andrew Groves to explain more. Today, fashion garments have labels bearing the names of long-dead designers who live on posthumously through a conveyor belt of ever-changing creative directors. The name and the label is the common thread that connects us to these original geniuses, providing provenance and conveying status. With some brands having over a hundred years of history, such as Lanvin and Chanel, the evolution of brand labels is one of the easiest ways to date the age of a garment. Subtle changes in wording, branding and font allow us to work out the provenance of a garment. For example, very early Alexander McQueen garments can be identified by a clear plastic label which included a lock of hair reminiscent of Victorian keepsakes. McQueen's labels were created using the hair of his assistants, who would have their heads shaved to enable enough shorn locks for production. As an assistant to McQueen myself in the early 90s, my head was shaved to provide enough hair for around 30 garments one season. Stone Island's iconic compass badge functions as its external label and has had numerous incarnations, with different coloured edge stitches or materials that allow experts to date a garment while their internal labels use a numbering system that allows any garment to be decoded by a 10-digit number that reveals the season, year, garment type and colour of each piece. In the 2000s, fashion collaborations suddenly took off, echoing the music industry's obsession with ensuring every new track featured other musicians as guest artists, each vying for top billing. In fashion, this craze reached its pinnacle in 2010 with a Marc Jacobs collaboration with himself, which the label helpfully informed us was Jacobs by Marc Jacobs for Marc by Marc Jacobs in collaboration with Marc Jacobs for Marc by Marc Jacobs. If it's true that the bold, strident, minimal and very prominent labels that we see today say a lot about the way we appreciate and consume our clothes as a culture. I was interested to see what vintage labels could tell us about the cultures that came before us. To do so, I made a trip to South Shields, a coastal town close to Newcastle in the north-east of England, to visit the archives of Barber, the famed outerwear specialist founded by John Barber in 1894. Here, we were met not only with an excellent plate of sandwiches, which almost never happens in fashion, 
but a veritable Aladdin's cave of vintage barber garments, some of which were more than 100 years old. Oh, yeah, that one's quite interesting. First up was a long brown coat, so worn and patinated that its waxed cotton fabric had become dark and shiny like leather, but still in beautiful condition. Yeah, there's a couple. They start around 1910. This is what we call the Finlay Barmac, which is a Drayman's cape. So Drayman was a beer seller. And it's very indicative of barber in the sense of it's a cape, so no sleeves. Put your arms through here for the reins. And it has an internal harness, so you could throw it off when the, when the weather got too hot. So it's very, very fit for purpose. You know, it's not a fashion garment. But it bears the label, which is this one, really, which is one of the first labels that we can find in the archive. I'm being shown around now by a man who, let's say, knows his stuff. Hello, my name's uh, Ian Bergen, and I'm Director of Men's Accessories and Footwear at J Barber & Sons. Ian is astonishingly knowledgeable about every piece that he pulls out, naming details and designs to their year of creation with barely a pause for reflection. He's pulled out the Finley Barmac because it contains the oldest example of a barber label in the archive. The label is a very darkly woven, high-density label. And right in the centre it features the red beacon, that's a feature of the South Shields headland, which is called the herd groin. And it has beacon brand right the way through the kind of main light there. Barbers, which kind of refers to the jacket being part of the Barber family brand, and South Shields. So very proudly part of the North East in that sense. We used to have a store in Market Square, South Shields. So this is very much a local product for local people to benefit from. John Barber set up the business, really, because he was an entrepreneur from quite a rich farming background, and he moved down to Newcastle because they'd finished the North Quay in Tynemouth, which makes the mouth of the Tyne navigable in 1894. And it meant that the whole port and Newcastle as a city began to boom. Shipbuilding, fishing, agriculture, mining, etc. So there were a lot of people here working that needed waterproof, stout products, you know, to keep them warm and dry. And so he chose the beacon. And there's been a beacon on South Shields headland since the Middle Ages. That is our registered symbol as a brand, is this beacon, which really is very evocatively brought out in the nature of the garments, the very rich, earthy colours, and the use of wax, obviously, because that's our point of difference, our kind of USP, you could say, that people still refer to. is this lovely sort of 19th century Gore-Tex, you could say, of this day, which was really all based and derived from use in the fishing industry. And that's why John Barber focused on that, really, for this area, because it does get a lot of heavy weather from the North Sea. And so the label, really, is very evocative of that in terms of it's a, a fully woven label, quite dark. And it's dark, really, for a number of reasons. I mean, you know with wax cotton, you can't really clean it. You can sponge it, etc. So the factory tended to use checks and tartans, darker colours on the inside, just to stop them looking dirty. <laughs> so really on this early label, there's quite a lot of messages to the customer, not only it being the brand name, but this additional idea of branding to do with the fishing industry and also the location where it's from. Very much so. The colours are lovely as well. And as you know, the best labels tend to be the ones which are aesthetically pleasing as well. Now it has a certain antiqueness to it, obviously, which is attractive. But I think the, the combination of colours are very of its moment, really. And they sit into the garment quite well. And that's something all the way through the garments you'll see. The labels, we've never been a heavily branded brand. So the inner label is just quite evocative of what we stand for as a brand, really. 
just pulling out these three garments. We've got one here, probably dates from the 1930s, which is a Solway smock, which was specifically designed for wild fowling. And we made this from the 40s through to the 1960s, actually. So here you'll see the development of the label. You know, you've got probably a name tag down mm. here, which has been sort of ripped off. But you've got the beacon, and then this is a printed label with South Shields, but a different design, and then they put barbers in a different font again. Quite rich colours, this lovely red and sort of backing of orange, and then neutral tone label. We've got catalogues in the chairman's office from right the way back to 1904. The fonts and the kind of various ideas vary as the business developed and they were trying to keep things fresh. And as the business developed, we started exporting all around the world. So you had this huge explosion in ideas and, and sub-brands and sub-little aspects to what we were doing. So there's a lot of artwork that was created at the time. And some of this comes through the label. So again, you get a different font here used on this label, which is very simple. You know, just a, a simple printed, basic label, putting the garments, Barbers of South Shields. They've had a lot of fun with the B on that one. Oh, yeah. Someone's, someone's obviously got a very thick <laughs> yeah. pen for that design. Someone's designed it, haven't they? You know, in that sense. So when you look at the catalogues, you get this very interesting development of the catalogues. Then all of a sudden in the 60s, they go really modern, you know, and you get all these like crazy modern fonts. And then the 70s are really funny. <laughs> Some of the fonts have used there. And then they become a little bit more what you know of barbers today you know which is the font that we have in our current label i do really like seeing this idea that before big art directors and agencies and brand wizards got hold of this idea of kind of fixed identity consistency and things like that labeling and identifying the garments was a little bit more improvisational and could be changed again and again and i think so i mean it wasn't until the 70s when we awarded our first warrant that you start developing brand identity as a backnet label which we've to be honest stuck with fairly rigidly since then you know it's now become known and recognized it's part of the dna of our jackets that people take in when they see it i mean it was it's a case of a younger business experimenting really and trying new directions and I think you know somebody look at it and go oh, that's quite nice yeah we'll use that one you know and we didn't used to have our own tartan so a lot of these would just have been bought locally and you know that looks quite nice we'll just put it in you know so I don't think it's any more complicated than that if I'm honest so we'll have a look at some others um, two warrant there we've got a one warrant and we've got a three warrant so yeah great could you explain what getting a royal warrant means yeah, they basically for supplying garments to the royal household. You get the warrant in recognition of that. And so Barbara actually today has three royal warrants, but they were awarded at different times. Mm -hmm. So are you saying this is a way that collectors actually kind of date yes. the garments? Yeah. Oh, right. So the first jacket you can see, this is an early Beedale. So this one with the one warrant, it's really a shorter equestrian jacket. You've got all the kind of aspects that have evolved over time in terms of the storm collar and I love the way the rivets right through the collar and that's simply because well, it's easier to put it through the collar you know it's not designed that way but it becomes part of your brand identity and then in terms of the label you get this very simple black label and then most of the labels when you go back to the archive have got these two yellow lines which go across so that was obviously someone had thought well Barber, made in England, we'll put the warrant on, and then we'll put the name of the style, so it's very easily identifiable. And then underneath, you've got your name label, which is a nice touch, I think, which is basically that's where you can put your ownership on, etc. So quite, quite British in that sense. <laughs> you don't get it stolen. Well, you get the font coming through there, this kind of, well, I think it's quite an attractive font in terms of Barber. And then obviously you'll see it's developed slightly over the years as they develop the actual brand identity. 
So this is the early version of the logo type that you use today, yes. um, which is a quite a spaced out sans serif font. Yes, it is. Yeah, pretty close to that, I think. I think it's probably been designed, but um, yeah, it's spaced out there. But you can see between this one, uh, 74, and then the two warrant one, which came in in 1982, which has got the Queen's warrant on as well. Then you see a much more modern font. It begins to have a shape. And then J. Barber and Sons, Simon Side, South Shields, Made in England, Fabric on Angleterre, because, you know, we've got an export business. So you see it beginning to change very much into a brand. Looking at this label where the three warrants are very clear, and it's so impressive, how has being awarded these warrants affected the business? I think it's reinforcing something which is very much part of our brand DNA and the products we make and how we go about our business which is really, you know, we're a family-run business, you know, and it's almost like a beacon of consistency, especially over the last sort of 10 or 20 years when there's been an explosion of information and changes become far more scary for a lot of people. And so when you have the three royal warrants on the barber label that hasn't changed and you have a design really, which dates back in terms of the B-Dale to the 70s and 80s, which is, you know, 50 years ago, it's something that you can rely on, isn't it? It's easy to feel very cynical about labels in the contemporary era. You might even say that the word itself, the idea of a designer label, has come to represent the idea of style over substance, the practice of buying or wearing something because of what it represents, not what it actually is. But as so eloquently demonstrated in the studio at Barber, there is that other side to the label. It is there ultimately to reassure us that we're getting something that's worth it. A label can make explicit not just the provenance of a piece of clothing, but the values that are associated with it, or the long history of design challenges, modifications and improvements that have made it possible. When that's done well, as our friends at MM Paris pointed out earlier, it can make for a powerful message that goes beyond a simple display of wealth or status. The best labels, in fact, make for clothes that are as meaningful on the inside as they are on the outside. You've been listening to The Details, a podcast from Mr. Porter, produced by Chalk and Blade. The producer was Eva Krishak. The assistant producer was Hester Kant. The executive producer was Ruth Barnes. Mixed by Chris Wood. Music by Adam Lieber and Julian Guidetti. To listen to all six episodes, search for the Mr. Porter podcast on your podcast provider or visit our site at mrporter.com forward slash the details. To hear more from Mr. Porter, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Porter Live or check out our online magazine, The Journal, at mrporter.com forward slash journal. <laughs>